I told you last week I wasn't going to try and exhaust John 17. We're circling back to cover more of John 17 this morning. And again, I'm not going to exhaust the passage. There are so many things here and themes so deep and so rich and so wonderful. We would never exhaust them, even if we devoted a whole series to them. But with this prayer from Jesus to the Father for us and for those who would believe through our ministry, I thought it fitting that we spend more than one week considering at least some of the richness and fullness of what Jesus has prayed for us. This morning, little Christians, I have this question for you. It's fairly simple, and it will be answered fairly directly in our passage. Why did Jesus leave us in the world? He made us a people for himself. We talk about the hope of heaven, or maybe the hope of the new heavens and new earth often. But Jesus talks about our being left in the world for a purpose. Why did Jesus leave us in the world? Older Christians, I have a question for you this morning. The answer will be the same as the answer to the question I had for young Christians. Why did God give us a share in his glory? This is the good news of Jesus as he prayed it over us, over his first apostles, over all generations who have believed from them down to us, from whom we have inherited the good news, and the good news that we stand and rejoice and celebrate together. This is Jesus' prayer over you. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. And do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, you have prayed for us. What can we add to your prayer this morning? We ask that you would glorify yourself in our midst, that you would glorify yourself in the world, that you would spread your gospel through us, that you would spread its work in us, that you would continue to sanctify us by your truth, by the word of the Father, and that you would call more worshipers to yourself, that the world would know that you were sent, that you were loved, that we have been loved. We ask that you would do these things for your glory and the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we moved through this prayer, through this passage, and I emphasized the glory of God. I said repeatedly, it is the glory of God that actually does us good. And if I could summarize it one way, I would say it is because the glory of God overcomes and replaces our love for lesser things. This morning, I want to tie that idea, Jesus' idea that the glory of God actually does us good. I want to tie it in to the ministry that Jesus promises he's giving us here in this passage, the ministry for which he prayed as he prayed to the Father before he went to suffer and die and rise for us. To give you a preview, the way that the Lord's glory does us good and gives us ministry, think about your presence here this morning. Your presence inside this theater cannot exhaust what we mean when we talk about the ministry of the church uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but... Some of the things pictured in this passage happen here. We unite the several who have been made one, the people who have been put together in one body, given unity that reflects the unity and the nature of the Trinity itself. And we come together unified to celebrate God's glory and to worship Him. And you're here this morning on a rainy morning when there was hot coffee at home and a newspaper or a good book. And it might have been difficult to come to this theater. By coming to worship this morning to gather with brothers and sisters, 
to enjoy your unity and enjoy the glory of God, you have preached to each other, if nothing else, that the rest you enjoy on the Lord's day is not full until your rest is rooted in God himself. And you preach to each other, if nothing else this morning, that this day is not properly celebrated until you have actually come together in unity to celebrate the glory of God that he has and gives to you. The glory of God does us good, and the glory of God feeds our ministry to each other and to those outside of us. I titled the sermon, Because, and some of you are probably wondering why. The answer is because. I titled it Because, Because, the passage moves through a prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, and all throughout the passage, he explains why he wants things, why he's giving us things, why he expects things to be true of us, why he prays certain things for us. This prayer is riddled with purpose. So look at it this way. There are answers to questions asking why in verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 19 and 21 and 22 and 23 and 24 and 26. It's a lot of because. Jesus prays, and he prays in a way that states purpose for us. In those first 19 verses, he prays repeatedly for the purpose of establishing unity and glory. In 17.1, he says, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In verse 11, I am coming to you, Holy Father, and I have kept them in your name that, so that they may be one. In verse 12, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I guarded them. Not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, except Judas, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Even the loss of Judas was not unexpected or unintentional. Verse 13, I am coming to you, and I have spoken these things in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, so that the joy of Christ would be fulfilled in the church. Verse 19, I consecrate myself so that they would also be sanctified in the truth. Verse 21, Jesus prays that we would all be one so that we would also be united with God so that they may also be in us. And there's another purpose behind all of that, so that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me. Verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to the church so that they may be one even as we are one. That they may become perfectly one, in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Verse 24, let them be where I am so that they can see my glory 
the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Finally, verse 26, he concludes with more purpose. I made known to them your name, your character, your reputation, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, may reside and remain in them. And I, Jesus speaking of himself, I may be in them, united to them in the church. Jesus has prayed all of these things, and we're not left wondering why he wants these things or what he wants to grow out of these things. He has prayed a prayer full of purpose. In those first 19 verses, his purposes center on unity and glory. And in 24 through 26, his purposes center on satisfaction, that we would know and be satisfied by divine love given to us. But in verses 21, 22, and 23, the purpose for which Christ prays, the purpose for which He's given us all these things, is so that we would share in His mission. And what's funny about that word is that as soon as I say it, all of your ears perk up. Some of you bristle, And some of you want to applaud because the word mission is used over and over today in Christian circles. And by those who embrace it and those who reject it, it is often wrongly misunderstood as code for Christian cool. It's a holy fashion. It means that we preach in skinny jeans or with faux hawks. As much as it pains me to say it, mission often is mistaken for growing and grooming beautiful beards. That is not what mission means. Jesus is praying all of these things because he is giving us his mission. Simply put, mission just means sending. Mission has in view the ministry of Jesus in the ministry that he's given to us. In verse 18... Jesus prays, just like you, Father, sent me into the world, just the way the Father sent the Son into the world for redeeming and reconciling ministry, so I have sent them into the world. In answer to those two questions I asked before reading the passage, that is why Jesus has left us in the world. He hasn't just left us passively. He hasn't forgotten about us. It wasn't leaving us to come back for us later and to do nothing with us in the meantime. He left us in the world to send us into the world with His ministry, with His mission, His sending, just the way the Father sent Him to hunt and reconcile and rescue, to gather worshipers around the glory of God. And I said this before I read the passage. The answer to the question I put to older Christians is the same. Why did God give us a share in His glory? It's because He was sending us into the world with His ministry and His mission. To do that, you have to carry His glory. That's what Jesus did in the world. 
Remember the opening chapters of John where John explains that Christ came into the world from outside of it. He possessed glory with the Father in the beginning. And he was sent into the world carrying the glory of God. And he made the Father known. He exegeted him. He explained him to people who would otherwise know nothing of him. And he did this not just for show and tell. He did this not just for a magnificent sideshow. He did it to gather worshipers constantly. That's the way he explains his ministry in John 3, 4, and 5. That the Father is constantly seeking worshipers. He is renewing and remaking worshipers. He is rebirthing them, giving them a new nature, filling them with a taste of His glory, making them new by His Spirit to fill them with His worship. And Jesus is doing that in the world, and that's what He's sending us into the world to do. That's the why, and that's the because. Jesus prays for us because he's sending us out in the world with his mission for God's glory. Not only as the goal, but God's glory is the message. It's the means by which the mission or the ministry is carried out. Look at all of the different things that we share or are made to share with God in this passage. In verse 13, we are made to share Christ's own joy. In verse 19, when he talks about our sanctification, we are made to share in His holiness. In verse 22, the glory the Father gave to the Son, He then gave to the church so that we share in God's glory. And then repeatedly at the end, verses 23, 24, and 26, we are made to share and enjoy God's love for us, the same love with which He has loved Jesus the Son. And in the middle of all of those things, in verse 18, I'll say it again, we are made to share in His mission, His ministry, His sending. We are made to share in all of these things for our own good, and for the good of those to whom we're sent. If we're going to carry out His mission and His ministry, if we are going to enjoy the fulfillment of His joy, if we are going to make good use of the holiness we share with Him, if we are going to understand and celebrate His glory rightly, and if we are going to celebrate and rest in His divine love for us correctly, and we are going to have to go to those to whom we've been sent, carrying all of these things so that they might share in joy and holiness and glory and love. And this isn't incidental when we get to John 17. This isn't a creative reading of one passage. This isn't trying to be clever this isn't Jesus giving us a little sidebar on a minor emphasis. This is the tenor of Scripture. That God has created, and that His creation has fallen and lies under the curse, and that He sent a Redeemer into it to rescue and put the creation back together, not to sit it on a shelf, but so that it would actively share in and enjoy all of these things from God Himself, because the creation is put back together correctly when it celebrates and enjoys God Himself.
This has always been God's purpose and desire for His creation. This is the narrative that pervades the entire story of Scripture. And so, of course, this is what Jesus prays for us before He goes to the cross. He goes to the cross to suffer the punishment of our sin, and He enters our tomb so He can walk back out resurrected with new life. And in the midst of it, He prays that the story of redemption would be fulfilled in us that we would be given a share in joy and holiness and glory and love because we're being given a share in His mission and ministry. Because the story of God's redemption has always centered on His creation being made right to enjoy Him properly, to be filled with and connected to the substance and weight and the radiance of His glory. And so when we talk about all these other things we love, joy and holiness and glory and God's love for us, these are gifts that cannot and should not be enjoyed privately. Yesterday was Ford's fourth birthday, and we had a party for him in the park. It was a beautiful day, no mosquitoes, no humidity. We were out in the morning, it was in the 60s and 70s. It was beautiful. And we threw him a party so that Ford could be enjoyed, so that we could all celebrate around Ford all that he is. And that analogy is broken, and you know why it is. We don't make 365 days of celebrating Ford. It wouldn't be proper But it would be proper if all of creation and all of existence centered on celebrating God and enjoying Him. If every moment of every day involved our relating to each other in ways that were satisfied in God and in Him fully and alone. At the party, there were gifts given like the ones I've described in this passage. The same way joy and holiness and glory and love cannot be properly enjoyed privately. Several people gave Ford birthday gifts. Some of them were games. You cannot enjoy shoots and ladders appropriately by yourself. It is a gift that can only be rightly enjoyed when others are invited to enjoy it together. That is a tiny, tiny, somewhat broken picture of what God desires His glory to do in creation. Remember when we were going through Malachi almost a year ago, we talked about the priesthood of the church. And Malachi's vision of what the priesthood should be and Christ's fulfillment of making His entire church His priesthood in the world, we saw it summarized in 1 Peter chapter 2, Listen to the way priesthood is tied to glory. Now put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He starts off having tasted the goodness of the Lord. 
But that goodness is not to be privately enjoyed and selfishly contained. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, talking about the beauty of Christ himself, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He goes on to explain from the Old Testament what it means for Christ to be rejected and at the same time to be chosen and precious. And then he picks up in verse 9, speaking of the church, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he is getting ready to explain their life in the world, and he won't leave these things. Our belonging to God, our reception of mercy, these are not ends in themselves to be privately enjoyed. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, your life in the world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of of visitation. Our priesthood in the world centers on our proclamation of the excellencies of God who saved us. Our reception of mercy is not an end in itself to be privately enjoyed, In the end, the world is supposed to see clearly and enjoy the glory of God made manifest in us at his return. And it says that even those who have not enjoyed it in this life will glorify God. They may not enjoy it as fully as we enjoy it. They may never know the saving benefits of it. But in the end, they will join in in praising God and glorifying Him because His goodness will be irrefutable, unmistakable. And then our participation in it will be full. This is where all of creation is headed. I'll read you one more passage. In Revelation 21, John the same apostle gets to see a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. What does it look like? What is it like to experience a creation set right? It's like seeing the the world filled with God's glory and seeing creation properly related to enjoying and celebrating God's glory. And here, God's glory is often tied to radiance. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hear the imagery of beauty and eagerness and joy. Later in the passage, he goes on and says that an angel pulled him aside and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel. 
he finishes the passage after a long description in some detail of what the glory might look like. And he says this, speaking of us made new and at home in the new creation. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb himself. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. By this light, all the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory, the glory they have derived from him, into it, into the new city. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. God's desire for his creation has always been that it would exist perfectly related to his glory, filled with his glory, that nothing would be hollow or empty like we talked about last week or like John explained as he set up the confession of sin this morning, that everything would be saturated with the weight of God's glory, the substance of what he intends for his creation, the substance of who he is in himself. And so the ministry that God has given to the church centers on his glory, displaying it as we're unified together, as we praise him and enjoy not just his benefits, but that he is the one who marvelously and wisely and good, I'm sorry, not goodly, marvelously and wisely works out things for the good of his creation in perfection. That ministry means that we will always declare His glory, declare His excellencies, and we will not be satisfied with lesser glory. And the ministry is declaring to others that they must be fully satisfied in His glory also. And this is where we are accused of arrogance, and this is often where we become arrogant. This is where the church often stumbles, and this is where the church is often misunderstood. It sounds arrogant, and it can be practiced with arrogance. To go to someone else and tell them they have not enjoyed things correctly, to tell them they haven't enjoyed or loved the right things, to tell them they have worshipped false gods, And they have not built their lives around the right object of worship. But if we really understand God's glory, if we really see it as the goal of all creation, the best fit for all creation, the substance of God himself in unspeakable beauty, joy that cannot be compared or taken away, love that is irrevocable, if we really believe these things about God's glory, then these won't, this ministry won't be motivated by arrogance. This is not our carrying the message of our superiority or our higher reasoning. This is a sincere love of God, all that He is, all that He desires for us, and a sincere desire to see others love and enjoy that which is most valuable and important. Think about it this way. 
if you met someone who told you that they are a foodie and a cinema buff and they love literature and music, you would be glad for them. You would be glad that they enjoy good things. But if they then went on to talk about and define all of these things as a love for McDonald's and movies that star Vin Diesel and Twilight and albums by Nickelback, you would want better for them. Because they have not loved these things well enough, they have not loved the right things. Now, you could approach that with arrogance. You could be smug and see in it a chance to exalt yourself and explain your own superiority, how you don't love any of those things. You love better things than they do, therefore you are better. But you could also be someone whose tastes have been trained, whose loves have been redirected to better objects, things that carry more depth, things that carry real beauty, things that will not undo you like Vin Diesel or Nickelback. And out of sincere love for them, you could genuinely want them to love better things. You could want better for them. They think they enjoy food now. They think they enjoy movies. They think they like reading Twilight They think they enjoy music, but you know they have not tasted the best things. They have not enjoyed the best things, and you want better for them. You want them to enjoy the things that are weighty and endure and have complexity and depth. That's what it would be to share in a ministry like Jesus who walked through creation and found people who loved things but did not love the right things, who worshipped things, but either didn't worship the right gods or didn't worship them appropriately and correctly, who did not enjoy the depth of belonging to God by not earning your way in, who did not experience the joy of being made new, and so he preached to them the best things, the best gifts, because he preached to them the gospel of the best glory, the glory of God himself made known in them as they are remade in his image. Why has Christ prayed all of these things for us? Because he wants to send us in his mission and ministry. And why does he pray these things for us and give us a ministry that looks like this? It's because... Because we are the people who are being remade in His image. To bear His image means that we will share in His joy, in His holiness, in His glory, in His love. We will share in a unity that mirrors that of the Trinity and preaches its goodness to those around us. Why has Christ prayed all of these things for you? Because by His grace, He is remaking you to resemble Him. In that, there is glory and joy and holiness and love. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. Having made us new by your grace, you have given us new affection. You have given us new joy. 
You have given us new desires. You have taken weak hearts that love lesser things. By the work of your Spirit, you have brought us to life, to love the living God, to know and be known by him. You have cared for us tenderly. You have challenged us often. You have embraced and comforted us. Now you have given us a ministry that does the same. You have sent us out into the world, not to be lost in it, but not to retreat from it. Instead, to carry the message of your glory and your joy and your love and your holiness, to challenge often and to embrace Would you fight our doubt with increased faith? And would you fight the doubt of those outside of us who have not believed by granting them faith? Would you fight our divisions by giving us greater unity, unity that reflects your unity with the Father and Spirit? And would you continue this ministry outside of us as you reconcile others to yourself through the church? Would you give us unity with them? Would you draw people into your worship? Would you satisfy us with your glory? Do these things for us, we pray. For our good and the good of those who will believe because of your message, do these things for your own glory. That you would be known and loved in your creation. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.